0: But if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, it's in the Old Testament. If you're using one of those uh, black hardcover Bibles, page 262 uh, is where you will find um, today's text. And we have reached the fourth out of five uh, of the mothers of Jesus this morning. Her name's Bathsheba. The mothers of Jesus, as we've considered during this series, they are these five female ancestors of Jesus Christ. Uh, that show up in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And as we've seen, their stories are pictures of how outsiders enter into the kingdom of God and then are caught up in the redemption that God is working in the world. So Advent, through and through, is the celebration of the outside entering in. It's first and foremost uh, a celebration of Jesus' incarnation. Just like we've been singing about this morning, Jesus took on flesh entered into this world, left the glories of heaven to do that so that he might save us and redeem us from our sin. We also get to rejoice and celebrate during the Advent season that because Jesus did that, we who would otherwise be outsiders ourselves, we who would forever be separated from God and outside of the kingdom of God, we can now enter in through that work of Christ. Bathsheba's inclusion in Matthew's genealogy is particularly fascinating because actually in Matthew's gospel, her proper name doesn't show up there. She's the only one for whom that's true. There's no Bathsheba in Matthew 1. Instead, she's referred to there as the wife of Uriah. And as much as I thought that I was uh, familiar with the events of her life and the the interaction between David and Bathsheba, uh, preparing for this sermon has really shed new light on on those events of her life. Um, on the implications for how we think and act as the people of God, and really the beauty of her inclusion in Jesus' genealogy. Uh, so whether this is the first time that you've ever heard these events, or whether this is the thousandth time and you've heard the story of David and Bathsheba a lot, I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, "'Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite?' So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why, th- why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house?" In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king... Then, if the king's anger rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know, did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why, do you, why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, She lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. O gracious and most merciful Father, you have given us the rich and precious jewel of your word. Guide us by your Holy Spirit, that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort written to reform us, to renew us according to your own image, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, Heavenly Father, for Jesus Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So in considering uh, this text this morning, I want to reflect on three things. The definition of adultery, deliverance from sin, and the hope of the displeasure of God. The definition of adultery deliverance from sin, and the hope of the displeasure of God. So first, let's consider the definition of adultery. And I actually need to begin this morning by apologizing for how I have taught and referred to this passage before. Um, As I've spoken about this text, this story, um, in conversation, uh, in Bible studies, even in sermons, I've used the word to describe the interaction between David and Bathsheba as adultery. But delving deeper into this, I'm convinced that's not the word that we should use. Why? Because adultery implies mutual fault. It implies that Bathsheba is at least in part at fault for this encounter that happens in 2 Samuel 11. But the actual text of Scripture, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11, chapter 12, does not substantiate that conclusion when you really dive into it. An author named Sarah Bowler did extensive research on this topic. Um, during her years at Dallas Theological Seminary. And here's a chart that she put together, I want to walk through that, that summarizes the differences between what we often suggest happened in this story versus what the actual text of 2 of Samuel 11 and 12 suggest happened. So we'll walk through it piece by piece. The first one, we often suggest that Bathsheba bathed on top of a roof. The evidence actually suggests that she was most likely in an enclosed courtyard. Where she would only be visible from a vantage point above her. If you actually reread the text, it's and even there's like songs about this that she was on the roof, roof bathing. The one on the roof in the story is actually David. It doesn't say that Bathsheba is on the roof. We just kind of write, read that into the story somewhere. And so if you've ever gone to like the beach, for example, and gone to like a seen like a public shower in the beach, uh, there's often like four walls but no roof. And so the only way to look into that would be from a vantage point up above, which is actually where, where David was. Second thing we often suggest that Bathsheba bathed naked. And that might be the case. Uh, The Hebrew word for bathed in this text is ambiguous. So it might mean that she was naked. It also might mean she was just washing a part of her body while otherwise fully clothed. I tend to think that the, the, the text suggests the former, that she actually was naked. But the point here is that the word itself in Hebrew is ambiguous. Third one. We often suggest that Bathsheba's immodesty caused a king to stumble, the evidence actually suggests that David is more like a peeping tom in this story. And here's where the road really begins to diverge, and it really begins to matter how we understand uh, the story of David and Bathsheba and the words that we use to describe it. It's important context to know the, the history of David's sexual sin goes back further than just this, this instance. Uh, Everybody seems to forget that when we think about David's life. Everybody seems to think, well, besides this one episode from his life, he was a pretty clean-cut, straight-laced guy. But long before this happens, David has actually gotten really comfortable with inconsistencies in how he handles his sexuality. All the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, God lays out his calling for how future kings of the people of God should act, how they should behave themselves. And he says in Deuteronomy 17, that kings must not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And of course, we always look to David's son Solomon as the, as the example of like how bad that can go. Through David's early years, before he officially becomes king, he seems to do fairly well at this. So when we read through the narrative of his life and we reach the end of the book of 1 Samuel, David has three wives. Okay, we'll have to save the the conversation about polygamy for, for another day. But according to the standards of Deuteronomy 17, he seems to still be doing well, even with three wives. After Saul's death, however, David becomes king. He captures the city of Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel 5, we read that David took more concubines and more wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And so David there does exactly what the kings of God's people are not supposed to do. And what we read then is that there's never any mention of him being uneasy about that, being repentant of that. So David gets comfortable with this huge inconsistency in his life between what God has called him to do and be as a king and what his life actually looks like. And so it's never, as far as we know, this flagrant, before this incident in 2 Samuel 11 between David and Bathsheba, there is a pattern of sexual sin that emerges in David's life. Fourth point. We often suggest that Bathsheba came willingly to the palace. But what we read there is that David sent messengers, plural, more than one, to take her, as it says in verse 4, from her home. And notice how, I hope you heard this, we read the entirety of the chapter because it's important to hear this in its context. Besides lamenting her husband's death, we get nothing in 2 Samuel 11 from Bathsheba's vantage point. There's nothing in there from her vantage point. So Bathsheba's not a main character in this text like David is. She's not even a secondary character like Uriah is. She's essentially part of this story as what? As a passive object. As a passive object. One author describes her as a complete non-person who's not even a minor character, but simply part of the plot. She's not an equal party to the sin, but only the means by which it is achieved. So, we suggest that Bathsheba had an affair with King David, that this was adultery. But next point, final point on the slide. The evidence suggests, the text suggests, David raped Bathsheba. Now, rape might sound harsh to you. I don't know if you've ever considered that idea in this text. That might sound harsh. And just to be clear, there's no sense that David used physical violence. Uh, There's no sense that that Bathsheba screamed out in protest and that that was ignored. But we have to call this what it is. This was a man in the highest position of power and authority using that power to take sexual advantage of a woman that he desired. So adultery. the word adultery just doesn't cut it to describe this. If anything, the word adultery downplays just how wicked David is by by subtly, in using the word adultery, assigning some of the blame to Bathsheba. And here's the reality of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. If you find yourself reading these chapters at the end of it trying to vindicate David more than you're trying to vindicate Bathsheba, you're on the wrong side of it. You're on the wrong side. Everything in 2 Samuel 11 indicates this is an unwanted sexual advance and sexual action undertaken by a man who had all the power, all the privilege, all the protection in the world. Who is going to stop David from doing What he wants in this scenario. In the next chapter, Nathan is bold enough to confront David after all this happens. And every sermon ever preached on 2 Samuel 12 talks about how bold that was and how David could have just had Nathan killed and been done with it. But of course, David doesn't do that. Well, that same thing that makes Nathan's act so courageous is exactly what makes stopping David from doing what he wants so impossible. Kings do what they want, when they want. No one tells them otherwise. So Bathsheba's involvement here is that of a woman who, in a place of, and try to put yourself in her shoes. Some of you, I know, have been there, very similar situations. Try to put yourself in her shoes. She's in this place of incredible vulnerability, summoned by messengers to the palace, and in that place, she sees no other recourse than to give in to the sexual lusts of the king of all of her people. So the text of Scripture here teaches and implies that Bathsheba is a victim one who is acted upon and a means of David's sin, but not one who is a willing participant in the sin herself. And if you're not yet convinced, let me offer a few other important considerations. Much is made of David's repentance. Bathsheba never repents for any of this. Why not? Well, she's either a lot more calloused, a lot more rebellious than David, or she has nothing to repent of in this scenario. And when Nathan the prophet confronts David in the next chapter, there's no... Confrontation for Bathsheba. There's zero blame placed upon her for this. And in verse 27, the last verse that we read of 2 Samuel 11, it says that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There's no mention of anything about Bathsheba's part in this that displeased God. And here's why all of that matters so much. For us to use the word adultery in reference to David and Bathsheba, that is at least in part to blame a victim to place shame, to place guilt, to place condemnation on one whom deserves none of those things. Sarah Power, the woman who put that chart together, says, a true understanding of Bathsheba's tale holds crucial ramifications for how Christians respond to a world filled with sexual abuse and saturated with misunderstandings about sexual misconduct. She says, I long for the day when believers eradicate the line of thinking in which the victim shares partial blame for a perpetrator's sin. And one step toward that end is sharing the true Bathsheba story. There are, and I'm sure I don't have to go through many examples for you, because I'm sure you have them already in your mind, there are tragically way too many examples within Christian subculture where female victims are made to share in some of the blame with male perpetrators. It happens in churches, uh, it happens in Christian schools, it happens on the mission field. I read a long article not long ago about a mission agency where there was a missionary doctor who serially groomed uh, and then sexually assaulted something like 20 women over a 30-year period. Some of those were adults. Some of those were minors. They were children. At one of the lowest points of that article, where I didn't know whether to just stop and weep, if I could keep reading this or not, or, or whether to like, give in to my anger and put my fist through a wall, the leaders of that organization made a 13-year-old sign a confession for her part in a, quote, relationship with a man who was more than 40 years older than her. Okay, that, that has to stop. That has to stop. And one of the ways to begin is by us as Christians stopping trying to, to salvage some of the reputation of David in this by pinning some of the blame on Bathsheba. This is not adultery. That word just does not do justice to what happened here. This is sexual coercion. This is sexual abuse. Rape is a word that captures this much more accurately than adultery does. And the other reason this matters so much is what leads us to our second point. So second, let's consider how Bathsheba's story helps us understand deliverance from sin. How does this story help us understand deliverance from sin? In the the Christian faith... Salvation is deliverance from sin. And most of the time we think about that, we think about it in terms of how we are delivered from our sin, the sin that we ourselves have committed. Uh, wrong things that we should not have done, good things we should have done but failed to do. And it's right to think about sin that way. Um, sin is rebellion against God. It is something that we as humanity are responsible for. What we celebrate during the Advent season is that Jesus has come into the world to deliver us From our sin. Uh, He provides forgiveness from our rebellion against God. He brings reconciliation with God. And so in this series, we've, we've seen and we've rejoiced in the stories of other women who were delivered from the guilt of their own sin, brought into the kingdom of God. But deliverance from sin isn't only about the sin that you and I commit. It's also deliverance from the sin that has been done to us. The ways that we've been sinned against the ways that others have hurt and harmed and wounded you. Deliverance from sin means that you are washed and you are cleansed from the sin of others and the stain of that sin, sin in which you had no responsibility, sin in which you were a passive object like Bathsheba was in this story. So think about it this way. Sin is both guilt and pollution. Uh, It's both something that we are responsible for and something that we are affected by. So to have a complete uh, robust definition of salvation means that we look to the work of Jesus to deliver us from both the guilt and the pollution of sin. In the Old Testament in the Old Testament there wasn't just one sacrificial animal. There were actually two sacrificial animals. Why? Because deliverance from sin is both propitiation and expiation. Those are big words, Christian words. Let me explain them. Propitiation is the sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God against sin. So God is holy. He's perfect. As sinners, we are guilty. We commit treason against that God. We incur his righteous wrath against sin. God is merciful, however, so he creates this system in which a sacrifice, a substitutional sacrifice, takes our place, takes that wrath for us. And on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, as it's described in Leviticus 16, one goat was slaughtered as propitiation for the sins of the people. But it's not the only goat that's involved. There's a second goat, the scapegoat. The priest would lay his hands on the head of this second goat, and he would confess the sins of the people. And then, rather than slaughter that goat, that goat would be led outside the walls of Jerusalem, set free into the wilderness. And that's the picture of expiation, that God takes our sin and removes it from us. As far as the east is from the west is what the psalmist says. That God not only deals with the guilt of our sin, but he deals with the pollution of our sin, that he washes and cleanses us from the effects of it. Jesus Christ comes into the world to dwell among sinful people. This is what we celebrate this season. He lives a perfect life, no doubt affected by the pollution of the sin of other people. But he's completely free of the guilt of his own sin. And in so doing that, he becomes the perfect, unblemished sacrifice that is offered up in our place. So we look to Jesus as both our propitiation and our expiation. He takes away the wrath of God that we would incur, and he also removes the sin from us. He cleanses the pollution, the dirt, the refuse that sits on us because of how we've been affected by sin. And so think about this, Bathsheba's inclusion in this genealogy of Jesus gives us a clearer, more complete understanding of deliverance from sin. And it points forward in Matthew's gospel to the fact that Jesus' redemption will not just be about the sins that we're guilty of, that you and I commit, but about the sin that is committed against us. That Jesus has come into the world that you and I might be delivered from both, from all of it. Later in her life, uh, 1 Kings 1 and 2 is the only other place in Scripture we read about Bathsheba. And there, she's no longer a passive object in the story. She has a voice. Her, Her input is valued in that account by both King David, who's on his deathbed, and the prophet Nathan. And that is, if you think about it, remarkable grace and remarkable redemption considering how she came to be married to David in the first place. But even more... From this relationship that had its beginning in this horrific sin against her, Bathsheba becomes a mother of Jesus. She's delivered from the sin of David and she's caught up into the ongoing work of God's great deliverance. Part of God's deliverance is cleansing her from the effects of what David has done to her, catching her up into his ongoing work of deliverance. She becomes one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. And this is conjecture uh, on my part, but... So, I want to make that clear. This is not, we don't know why Matthew leaves off her name in the genealogy, but could it be that this is why she's the only person not named in Matthew chapter 1? When a news story is published about sexual assault, it's fairly common for the name of a victim to be redacted in order to protect and care for someone in that vulnerable position. What if that's what Matthew's doing in the genealogy of Jesus? Think about this. It can't be that her name or her story is too scandalous to include because look at the other names that are around her all over the place. It's actually more scandalous to to refer to her as the wife of Uriah because all that does in our ears is make us think, well, that was what David did. It's that much more wicked. He didn't just do that to a woman, an image bearer of God. He did that to a woman who was another man's wife. So what if in a list filled with perpetrators, it's the name of the victim that is left off? If that's the case, it's only further evidence that God not only propitiates wrath against perpetrators, but he expiates the pollution against victims. And that leads to the last point this morning, the hope of the displeasure of God. The hope of the displeasure of God. 2 Samuel 11 ends with this phrase, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. For the longest time here, it appears that David might get away with this. Some scholars actually think that up to a year passed between the end of 2 Samuel 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 when he's finally confronted by the prophet Nathan. But as we read, David doesn't get away with this, and that is the hope of the displeasure of God. It's a weird phrase, the hope of the displeasure of God. What hope does that afford? Well, for one thing, it means that God will not cease to be God. As important as you think you are, whatever position of power you occupy, you are not God. And unlike fearful servants or subjects, God will not cave to the impulses and the destructive tendencies of people in power, people in position. So even for David, who's described in scripture, a man after God's own heart, a man with whom just four chapters prior to this, God has made an eternal covenant. God will not cease to be God. He will not cease to call sin, sin. And in that regard, God is no respecter of persons. Even if David's reputation is soiled because of this, even if that seems like it's going to reflect poorly on the very nature and character of God himself, because this is a man after God's heart, one appointed by God to be in that position, God will still hold the guilty accountable. Furthermore, that God is displeased with David not Bathsheba, but David alone, means that we serve a God who doesn't force victims to carry condemnation and shame and blame, and at the very same time, a God who will offer mercy to the most wicked of perpetrators. He is the God who will deal with the entirety of sin, all of the aspects of sin, both its guilt and its pollution. If you're familiar with the story, you know that David in chapter 12, repents. And he's restored after his repentance. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, Nathan assures David, the Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. And that is, lest we forget this, that's a beautiful picture of God's mercy, of God's deliverance of David from this horrific sin that he's committed. But I would beg you, Christian, Do not tie a nice, neat little bow on this story without fully considering Bathsheba. Do you know what it does to a victim? When you rush to rejoice in God's mercy to a perpetrator, it crushes their soul. It crushes their soul. Because where's the hope for them when you rush to the to rejoice in the mercy and deliverance for a perpetrator? Where's the hope? Where's the justice for a victim? And otherwise well-meaning Christians, we do this. We do this way too often. In wanting to claim and to rejoice in the mercy of God for the worst of sinners, which is true, we need to remember that when we rush to that conclusion, we make victims feel like Bathsheba in this text. Passive objects. People who aren't even really a character in the story. Complete non-persons, as that one author put it. Who are just footnotes in this other story for the one who really matters. That Bathsheba shows up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ means we cannot for all of time write her off as a non-person. It means that whenever you look at the family line of the savior of the world, you will have to look square in the eyes of both a victim named next to a perpetrator. And it means that you'll be forced to wrestle with this complicated reality that God in Christ has become the only means of hope and the only means of salvation for both. And friends, this is the only remedy to the crisis that we find ourselves in in our day, in our culture. In the midst of all of these stories over the past couple months, of men of of positions of power using that power to exploit, to sexually assault women, if you dial into the cultural narratives, you will mainly get only justice or only mercy, You'll get only justice where, in the name of helping victims, people become really self-righteous, and they forget that they too have the guilt of sin in them and that they themselves are desperate for the mercy of God. Or you'll get only mercy, where those who are overwhelmed by their own guilt, they're overwhelmed by their own sense of not measuring up, will rush to put a Band-Aid on a bullet hole, and they'll heal and pardon sins lightly. Only with Jesus... Do you get all justice and all mercy? And let this renew your awe of what the work of Christ has accomplished this Advent season, that the same Jesus who was born to absorb the wrath of God for the worst of perpetrators is the Jesus who was born to wash and cleanse us from all and victims from all of the refuse that they've had to endure. The personal work of Christ is the only thing, it's the only thing that enables the remedy for both perpetrator and victim, and that is exposure. Bringing it all into the light. For the victim, it's not sitting in the condemnation and shame of something you had no fault in. It's bringing it into the light. For the perpetrator, it's not hiding and covering up the guilt of how you've wronged another person. That what David did here displeased God Means that right afterward, exposure is coming. And with that exposure, there's going to be vindication for the victim and opportunity for repentance and mercy for the perpetrator. In a work entitled Saving Bathsheba, an author named Rachel Stone writes this It appears that what made David's sin possible was secrecy. And what brought forth his confession of guilt was the threat of exposure. For the sake of justice and for the sake of healing, faith communities must acknowledge that compassionate attention and full apologies are needed. So if and when, whether it's this sin or a different sin, if and when you are a perpetrator of sin, step into the light. Don't waste away covering up that sin in the darkness. There is mercy, there is forgiveness for you too, but only through repentance. So own that sin Come into the light, repent of it, and receive mercy. If and when you are a victim of the sin of others, don't be forced to own something that you should not own. Don't carry blame for something done to you and over which you had no control. And as people in community together, in the church, help one another navigate this, With sexual assault, it's it's clear-cut. There's a perpetrator and there's a victim. It's not that clear-cut in other types of sin, like relational conflict. It's rare in relational conflict that this person has 100% of the blame and this person has zero. So in light of God's displeasure with sin, help people see and own the sin in their lives. Help them at the same time not own what they need not own. Through us, through the church, particularly in the way that we think about and act in terms of sexual assault, and sexual sin. May God's justice and may God's mercy be known in the world. And God forbid, God forbid that we would be complicit. God forbid that we would silence victims. God forbid that we would heal wounds lightly or flippantly. Instead, as salt and light, which is what Jesus calls us in the world, may we push back what is dark Where perpetrators are moved to exposure, to honesty, to repentance. Where victims aren't blamed so that they might step into the light and receive the caring and the healing that they truly need. I'll close with this. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, the account of David and Bathsheba teaches us that we need a better king than David. We need a way better king than David. And in the scandalous grace of God, one is coming. And he will come from this very family line. He will come from this very marriage which began as perpetrator and victim. This is the power of God to deliver and to redeem both. So in the guilt of your sin and in the pollution of the sin committed against you, may you step into the light. May you embrace the salvation of the only one who can both deal with the guilt of your sin and cleanse the sin committed against you and remove it from you as far as the east is from the west. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh, Jesus, open our eyes to see the, the immense breadth of your salvation. That you have come to pardon the guilty and you have come to cleanse the dirty to cleanse those who have been stained by the sin of others over which they had no control. And I pray in this, God, we would find hope for ourselves, whether this morning we become overwhelmed with our own guilt and the sins that we have committed, or whether this morning we're sitting here overwhelmed by the sin that's been done to us and feeling like that's, that stain is still on us. I pray that this Advent season we would see in the genealogy of Jesus, in the inclusion of Bathsheba, that you have come to deliver us from all aspects of sin, from the entirety of sin, that we can step into the light, whether we are perpetrator or victim, without dealing with, wo- with sins lightly, without healing wounds lightly. We can rejoice in the full justice and the full mercy that you have purchased for us, Jesus, by your life, your death, and your resurrection. And we come to this table recognizing that you will not deal with sin lightly, but that you have dealt with sin in the harshest way possible by taking the wrath upon yourself, saving us from the penalty that is rightfully ours. So Jesus, you are the one who came into the world to save us from sin. May we come and receive grace from you at this table this morning, the deliverance from both our guilt and the pollution of sin. Amen.